Uh, this is a part scripted live stream. Um, I have basically a script for part five of this series, but the end of it was kind of really going into the speculative realm of just what could happen at the wall with Melisandre's magic and Jon Snow's resurrection. Um, and so I figured it would be a good one to present live. So I'm going to do the first, I don't know, it's got maybe 20, 25 minutes of normal script time. And then we're going to transition into a little bit of discussion, take some suggestions from you. And I want to kick around. I've got some new sort of speculative theories and stuff that I want to kick around to you guys. So here I am live and in person. It's been a week and a half. Uh, I was on vacation. I went to Santa Cruz uh, with, uh, with Miss Maelstrom, with Miss Minty. We had a great time. I had enough vacation to where, like, I don't look... Look at this. The bags under my eyes are diminished. I almost look human. Um, so, yay. That's good. Um, of course, I, being self-employed, when I take a vacation, my income does dip a little bit. So any support you guys want to give me today, I would appreciate. Uh, PayPal.me, Mythical Astronomy, and, of course, the Super Chat function inside of YouTube. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, you can use those two to show appreciation in the first part while I'm reading the script. And then, of course, like I said, we're going to transition into a discussion where you guys can pipe in with your questions. And, you know, actually, the PayPal.me is really cool because it stores the questions right in my email and I can get to them when I'm ready. So if you have random ideas or questions that occur to you throughout the script, feel free to pipe them in. And I may not get to them until I'm done with the script, but... Uh, you know, even the super chat, uh, Minty will grab it and put it in the document, and then I will get to it uh, when I'm done reading the script. So, without further ado, here we are, Melisandre's Secrets Five. I hope you guys have been enjoying the series. I have been enjoying making it quite a bit. I love Melisandre. I love fire magic. I'm the dragon. Of course, I love fire magic. Um, it, you know, I love Jon Snow. I love the whole fire white thing. I love Beric. All that stuff. Beric is one of my favorite symbolic characters in the story. Uh, so I've been, um, you know, I, I talk about these people a lot, but it was really fun to drill down and get more specific with all this stuff. And I really hope you guys enjoyed the deep dive on like Timmet, son of Timmet, and Mully, the redheaded Night's Watchman. Those scenes are a little in the weeds, but of course, it's a little bit of a throwback to the classic mythical astronomy style, what we used to do. And before I even get into the script, in fact, I have another find about Mully that I will uh, show you guys showing some John Resurrection stuff. But first, let me say thank you to Dr. Notes. Thanks for the content. Quite welcome for the content. I love making it. Um, so Molly, yeah, Molly has a scene where he is raising the winch cage while John is in it. And it sounds like the whites are raising. So let me see if I can just pull this up real quick. So check this out. There's a couple of quotes here. It says, Where the stair had been only an immense tangle of charred wood and broken ice remained below the wall. The winch raised them up now, but the cage was only big enough for ten men at a time, and it was already on its way up by the time John arrived. He would need to wait for its return. Others waited with him. Dun, dun, dun. Satin, mully, spare boot, kegs, big blonde Harith with his buck teeth. Everyone called him horse. He had been stable hand in Molestown. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so John's waiting with the others, waiting to be raised in the cage. And I'm about to show you the quote where the winch cage is pretty obviously symbolism for resurrection. Of course, anything that's a ladder or a stairway, a tree, a spiral stair, a tower with a stair, that's all 
the stairway to heaven symbol, the Jacob's ladder symbol, something that allows man to enter the realm of the gods or the gods to come down to the earth. Uh, it's, it's classic mythology archetype stuff there, of course. So we've got a, a wooden stair, the switchback stair, which has been burned. And that's a whole burned weirwood symbol there. Um, but then we've got, you know, the winch cage, which brings people up and down. So it's bringing people from the ground up to the clouds, essentially. And we see that while they're waiting for the cage to come back, Clytus brings them cups of hot mold wine. So here we have the hot, fiery wine symbol. Uh, thanks, old new dude, piping in with a super chat. Have a glow about me. Yeah, a little vacation time, a little... Spending time with loved ones, it'll do you good. Do you good? I, I basically had been staring at Adobe Premiere for you know two and a half years, so it was nice to. Uh, we went to the beach and stuff, but I digress. Um, so here's the a little further on. It says, "Finally, the cage came clanking back down, swaying at the end of the long chain, and they crowded in silently and shut the door." Mully yanked the bell rope three times. A moment later, they began to rise. So three, think of like you know, uh, the horn that wakes the sleepers, three, you know, three blasts of the horn to signal the others. You know, dragon binder was blown three times. So here we have three pulls on the bell rope. For whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. A moment later, they began to rise by fits and starts at first, then more smoothly. No one spoke. At the top, the cage swung sideways and they clambered out one by one. Horse gave John a hand down onto the ice. The cold hit him in the teeth like a fist. So I'll just read that sentence again. A moment later, they began to rise by fits and starts at first, then more smoothly. This sounds like a sentence describing the, the green zombies rising from the dead in fits and starts. And then more smoothly as they gained control of their undead limbs. No one spoke because they're zombies and they're dead. Something like that. I don't know. So anyways, um, then it says... Uh, then, of course, they get to the top of the wall, right? And the top of the wall is where they defend the wall. That's where John has the dream of defending the wall with a burning red sword and the burning Scarecrow brothers. So here's Mully raising them in fits and starts to the top of the wall. Then the cold hits him in the teeth like a fist. So these fire whites have been resurrected. They're ready to fight the others at the top of the wall. And it says, a line of fire is burned along the top of the wall, contained in iron baskets on poles taller than a man. Um, the cold knife, uh, so <laughs> that's cool. So the fires are contained in iron baskets. Well, the Night's Watchmen just rode to the top of the wall in an iron basket as they were symbolically resurrected and given the hot wine. So this is just a double symbol here. And that's why they're on poles taller than a man, because those iron baskets were supposed to think about the people that we just saw. Um, so then it says the cold knife and, of course, baskets on poles. The Scarecrow brothers are on poles as well. Um, so then it says the cold knife of the wind stirred and swirled the flames, so the lurid orange light was always shifting. Bundles of corals, arrows, spears, and scorpion bolts stood ready on every hand. Rocks were piled 10 feet high. Big wooden barrels of pitch and lamp oil lined up beside them. Bowen Marsh had left Castle Black well supplied in everything save men. The wind was whipping at the black cloaks of the Scarecrow Sentinels who stood along the ramparts, spears in hand. I hope it wasn't one of them who blew the horn, John said to Donald Noy when he limped up beside him. 
So this is pretty good. We got the scarecrow sentinels at the top of the wall, and then they're talking about, well, what if those, what if the scarecrow sentinels were the ones that blew the horn, uh, the horn that wakes the sleepers, right? So the horns are specifically associated with waking sleepers, which could be the dead, obviously. And then it just furthermore just suggests the idea that these scarecrow sentinels might be, they might be animated, they might be like blowing horns and you know defending the wall and stuff. So. There you go. That's one more Mully quote that I just didn't have. I, I did like 10 minutes of Mully. <laughs> so I figured that was kind of a hit, you know, should stop there or whatever. But uh, and special shout out to the fella whose cosplay uh, I used for Mully. Let me just say his name real quick because it was good. Uh, that is... Karen Surth, C-A-R-A-N-C-E-R-T-H. Karen Surth, I think he's on Instagram and social media and stuff. And he did a bunch of cool Night's Watch cosplays. I'll go ahead and share one of those real quick so you can see who I'm talking about. Really good Night's Watch cosplay. So I just want to give him his credit. Since I used his face, it's very personal. So this that's uh, Karen Surth on Instagram and, and other social media a red-headed Night's Watchman who I used for Molly. Thank you, sir. Like I said, that's Molly. Little extra, little extra scene there. So what we're going to talk about today, essentially, is Melisandre and John. We're getting into John specifically. I, I separated the whole idea of the Fire White's Watch out so that we could focus just on John and Mel this time, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Regarding Melisandre wanting to make a shadow baby with John. There is some interesting foreshadowing between John and Mel in a dance with dragons that seems to wander back and forth between resurrection talk and shadow baby talk. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but we're going to mine it for all it's worth. So pay close attention and see what you can catch. And this, of course, is the scene where Melisandre first walks up behind John in the shadow of the wall and just for a second looks like you grit to John's eyes. And then as he gets closer, he's like, oh, no, it's Melisandre. And Mel, Mel, this is also the scene where Mel successfully calls Ghost over to her. So I do have the quote readings, by the way, uh, prepared in advance. So let me share this with you guys. I didn't do it reading Rhaegar style because I didn't want to distract from the seriousness of the topic, but... Your wall is a queer place, but there is power here if you will use it. Power in you and in this beast. You resist it, and that is your mistake. Embrace it. Use it. I am not a wolf, he thought. And how would I do that? I can show you. Melisandre draped one slender arm over Ghost, and the dire wolf licked her face. The Lord of Light in his wisdom made us male and female, two parts of a greater whole. In our joining, there is power. Power to make life. Power to make light. Power to cast shadows. Shadows. The world seemed darker when he said it. Every man who walks the earth casts a shadow on the world. Some are thin and weak, others long and dark. You should look behind you, Lord Snow. The moon has kissed you and etched your shadow upon the ice twenty feet tall. John glanced over his shoulder. The shadow was there, just as she had said, etched in moonlight against the wall. So how's the volume that, guys? Uh, is that coming through adequately? I hope so. 
And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep this up on the screen so I can go through and have the quote up here as I discuss them. So, first of all, Melisandre is definitely proposing to make a shadow baby with John, right? When she talks about male and female being two parts of a greater whole, which can make life and light, or maybe monstrous shadows, perhaps 20 feet tall and ready to do battle, right? So this, this looks like foreshadowing here, if you'll pardon the shadow baby foreshadowing pun. Um, John's shadow is being cast onto the wall, right? By a kiss from the moon. So we should probably think about a kiss and probably some sex magic from a moon pale woman like Melisandre to cast John's shadow. Just as Davos saw the shadow baby that was made from Stannis's life fires as having been cast by Stannis. So in other words, Mel makes an actual sex magic proposition to John. And then we see sex magic, John's shadow baby symbolism to sort of just go along with it. And certainly Mel is thinking about shadow babies as she points out how long and dark John's shadow is. Insert your own insertion jokes there, right? <laughs> so this line about a moon kiss to cast John's shadow would also seem to be referring to John's resurrection, where John will need the last kiss of Valor from Melisandre in order to become a shadow meaning a fire white, because all the whites are referred to as shadows, as we've discussed. So one or both of these things may happen, and they both seem to be being foreshadowed here, both John's resurrection and shadow baby talk. So notice the line, the world seemed darker when he said it, meaning the word shadows, and of course the long night when the world darkens, that's when we're going to need shadow John, resurrected John. So... Kind of all fits together there. Now, as to John's shadow being cast upon and etched into the wall, well, that seems like it would refer to several things. It could refer to John's dead body being stored inside the ice cells of the wall, which seems likely. It definitely refers to resurrected John defending the wall, as he does in the Azor High Dream. And then, of course, um, there's also the possibility that John's corpse might be stolen by the others and temporarily ice-whited which would be like his shadow being etched into ice, into an icy body. And this, by the way, could also be the meaning of John's black ice armor in that Azor High dream. Because remember, um, he's got the burning red blade, but he's armored in black ice. We know that the ice whites, their bodies turn as hard as ice, and they have black hands, like cold hands, right? They're hard and black and cold. In fact, the only explanation for cold hands, and I've said this a few times, is that he was ice-whited and then somehow freed from enchantment, right? I mean, he's, his body is ice-whited. The only difference is that his, his, he's not controlled by anyone else. So we've talked about the fact that Cold Hands is probably a skin changer, and that's what enabled him to be able to be restored, if you will. But he was obviously ice-whited and then, and then freed. So... This is probably something that's going to happen to John, or at least something that could happen with John. And Cold Hands is going to be the obvious precedent if that happens. So maybe Melisandre's fiery kiss will be the thing that frees John from his icy enchantment. And that maybe that would create a kind of ice and fire zombie. Maybe he retains the cold outside, but inside he's powered by R'hllor. So you have that whole ice and fire thing. 
that obviously fits John and it would sort of match the dream. Now, it could also be that the black ice armor is just a reference to Valerian steel because, of course, Ned's sword is called ice and it is black, black ice, and Euron has Valerian steel armor. So maybe way down the road, you know, Danny, Euron mix it up and somehow Danny gives the armor to John or John kills Euron and takes it from him. Who knows? Maybe he'll wear that armor. Um, but the main thing I want to focus on is that the idea that, you know, in the show, the resurrection of, you know, Melisandre is involved in John's resurrection, but she doesn't really do much magic, seemingly. Um, it's We know it's going to be more complicated in the books, but one way in which it could be more complicated is that the kiss could be the thing that frees John from ice whiting. So that would be pretty cool and also fairly dangerous. Uh, so another sense in which John's shadow could be etched into the ice of the wall is the fact that Melisandre will be using the magic of the wall as a fulcrum for whatever spells that she performs to cast John's shadow. That's kind of the whole point of her inner monologue about the wall amplifying magic that she might perform in its vicinity. She's excited at the thought of using this magical boost, if you will, at the first chance that she gets. And certainly she would use it during any potential John resurrection spell, right? So what's a little twisty here, guys, is Mel's segue. She starts by, and no, no I don't mean like Melisandre on a segue. <clears throat> I mean, you know, she starts by encouraging John to embrace his skin changer magic. There's power in the wolf, right? And then offers to teach him how. I can show you how. But then when, she, when he asks her how, her answer immediately shifts to talk of sex magic and making shadow babies. So what's the deal there? I mean, I tend to agree that John does need to obviously embrace his skin changer ability, assuming he still has it when he's resurrected, which I think he will. But what's that got to do with making shadow babies? Well, it could simply be about John becoming more powerful and magical so that Melisandre can make a better shadow baby with him because that does seem to be part of it, as we saw when Melisandre spoke of being able to make shadow babies with a man whose flames still burn hot and high. Man whose flames still burn hot and high, eh? You mean like John Targaryen of the Berserker Fury, a man who clearly has the stark wolf blood as well as the fabled dragon blood of Valyria? Perhaps John's magical potency in this making a shadow baby context, would increase if he were to more fully embrace his skin changer magic. That's kind of what I'm saying here. Now, John is dead, of course, but a man whose flames burn hot and high, that might be a good way to describe someone resurrected by fire magic, right? And here I will pull up our next quote reading. Relore sends us what visions he will, but I shall seek for this man torment in the flames. Melisandre's red lips curled into a smile. I have seen you in my fires, Jon Snow. Is that a threat, my lady? Do you mean to burn me too? You mistake my meaning. She gave him a searching look. I fear that I make you uneasy, Lord Snow. Jon did not deny it. The wall is no place for a woman. You are wrong. I have dreamed of your wall, Jon Snow. Great was the lore that raised it, and great the spells locked beneath its ice. 
We walk beneath one of the hinges of the world. Melisandre gazed up at it, her breath a warm, moist cloud in the air. This is my place, as it is yours, and soon enough you may have grave need of me. Do not refuse my friendship, John. I have seen you in the storm, hard-pressed, with enemies on every side. You have so many enemies. Shall I tell you their names? All right. So, John does, of course, have grave need of Melisandre since he's dead. And I do think that's an intentional sort of foreshadowing there, either by the author and or Melisandre herself. Um, and John is going to probably need her to burn him in the sense that he'll need Melisandre to give his kips the, his corpse the last kiss of R'hllor to fill him with holy resurrection fire and bring him back from the dead. Now, it's not just a matter of raising John's corpse with the last kiss, of course, because unlike Beric, John is a skin changer. And that's what I mean about John's resurrection being more complex than Beric's. John's spirit, as we know, will have started its second life in his aptly named wolf ghost and may not actually come back to his corpse when it's resurrected. He may, his spirit might stay stuck in his wolf. So if John's spirit has begun to merge with ghost's wolf spirit, as begins to happen with second life, then someone, like Melisandre, may need to actually drive a combined John-ghost spirit out of the wolf so that it can be bound to John's resurrected body. And this will probably also require fire. And I'm always sad to say this, of course. We've already seen Melisandre use fire to drive a skin changer out of their animal with Aurel and his eagle. And that may well be the only way to get the combined John-ghost man-wolf spirit out of the wolf body. <clears throat> so if we go back to the quote that we read a minute ago at the beginning and back up a little bit to the part where Melisandre calls Ghost over to her, we can see basically a crap ton of foreshadowing. This is a really great one, so get ready. She gazed at Ghost. May I touch your wolf? The thought made John uneasy. Best not. He will not harm me. You call him Ghost, yes? Yes, but... Ghost. Melisandre made the word a song. The direwolf padded toward her. Wary, he stalked about her in a circle, sniffing. When she held out her hand, he smelled that too, then shoved his nose against her fingers. John let out a white breath. He's not always so... Warm? Warmth calls to warmth, John Snow. Her eyes were two red stars, shining in the dark. At her throat, the ruby gleamed, a third eye glowing brighter than the others. John had seen Ghost's eyes blazing red the same way when they caught the light just right. Ghost, he called. To me. The direwolf looked at him as if he were a stranger. John frowned in disbelief. That's... queer. You think so? She knelt and scratched Ghost behind his ear. Your wall is a queer place, but there is power here if you will use it. Power in you and in this beast. You resist it, and that is your mistake. Embrace it. Use it. Just love that last art by Aransa Sisteo. That's, of course, from the new calendar. Uh, I've been using all of, the, uh, all of her art that I can as quickly as I can. I got a couple of those on the covers of this Melisandre series. So lots, lots uh, in that one. Uh, <laughs> may I touch your 
trail off. Wolf. <laughs> That's obviously got everyone chuckling. Uh, but since his wolf is called Ghost, what Melisandre is figuratively asking to touch here is John's ghost. Shadowbinder alert. <laughs> and indeed, Mel makes the word ghost a song, which means that she's using sorcery. And I hope you liked my little audio effect there. Um, and she uses sorcery to call John's ghost to her. So again, this seems like pretty clear resurrection foreshadowing. John's ghost will in fact need to be called forth from his wolf through some kind of magic. A warm kind of magic, have no doubt. Warmth calls to warmth. And just as Melisandre is calling forth John's ghost, John lets out a white breath. Or perhaps a W-I-G-H-T white breath. And then he observes that ghost is not always so warm. Never so warm as when in the middle of a bonfire, right? And oh, hey, uh, you know, John has seen ghosts' eyes blaze red, just like Melisandre's red star eyes when they catch the light. The fire of the Lord of Light. That's what makes people blaze up like red stars, of course. Warmth calls to warmth, she says, but Melisandre's warmth comes from R'hllor's fire. And... That's what Melisandre will be calling Ghost to, a Relorist bonfire. Melisandre's eyes look like red stars because she is internally on fire, because she has been given to R'hllor. And so too might the similarly red-eyed ghost be given to R'hllor in order to resurrect John. And when John lives on inside, when Ghost rather, lives on inside resurrected John, I suspect that John may have those same Red star eyes, of course, which would make him a worthy opponent of the blue star-eyed others. So, to sum up, red-eyed ghost may be burned with magical fire, but it's only so that John can become a magical, fiery, red-eyed ghost. So it's kind of been foreshadowed this whole time, in other words, from the moment John names his wolf to this scene, which is so very pregnant with foreshadowing and Yes, that's a pregnant with shadow baby foreshadowing joke. Of course. Of course. Now, look, every time I talk about this, people get sad. I realize that. I, I want to emphasize that the flesh is only meat, right? It's just a meat sack. And that ghost's wolf spirit will simply be swapping meat sacks and becoming part of resurrected John. Because after all, John's going to be cranky and undead. So he'll need his wolf for company. And he'll have his wolf for company right there inside his body. And guys, there's really no way around this. John's Mithras parallels are inescapable, as I've discussed before. And an oft-depicted scene in Roman Mithraeums is called a Tauroctony. And in it, Mithras famously slays his companion, which is the white bull, in order to be reborn. And that's why George nicknames Gerald Hightower the white bull, and then kills him at John's birth. And also why, John, why George has given John a white animal for a companion, just like Mithras, who will inevitably have to die for John to be reborn. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. Ghost is John's second life, like in the video game sense. But again, both spirits will merge and share John's body, so we don't need to be overly sad. Please don't unsubscribe. <laughs> now... Of course, I also had mentioned in the last live stream that I think it's very possible that 
the dead wolf body may also get fire whited. Like, why not? Um, if we're filling dead things with relorist fire, might as well fill ghost with the fire. And then you'd have fire white John and fire white ghost. Maybe their consciousness can control both at the same time or something cool like that. Um, I really do think uh, that it, the ultimate badassery available here is John firewhited with fire white ghost at his side. Uh, so that's what I'm pulling for now. Yeah, don't shoot the messenger exactly. And uh, I've I've been using this one Dark Souls artwork lately to sort of represent what this might be like. And I will share it right now. It's by Stephen uh, Kakai K. This this is more like a fire other with a fire wolf, but it's pretty cool to imagine John, the flaming sword, kind of looks like black Valerian armor. I assume he'll have a face and not just a fiery, like, you know, circle or whatever. But, yeah, it's pretty cool. And why not throw some armor on the direwolves? We're definitely going to need some dragon armor. But I digress. So back to the matter at hand. Take note of Ghost looking at John like a stranger here. Because, of course, the stranger is the death god of the faith, faith of the seven, uh, of their pantheon. And John's face, not John, I'm sorry. The face of the stranger is often depicted by a black shadow or even a black shadow with two stars for eyes. So John has abundant stranger and lord of death symbolism, of course, such as the skulls that Melisandre always sees around him in her visions, or when John thinks that he would be a stranger in black if he ever left the wall. John is being named the stranger here right after Mel has called his ghost to her and right out right after John lets out his white breath. So that's just when John would be becoming undead. That's when he would become the stranger, the, the instrument of death uh, uh, brought to life, if you will. And this is also right before Melisandre proposes making a shadow baby with John. So perhaps the sequence will be similar when John is raised. Melisandre calls John's ghost back from death and from his wolf. His fires will burn bright and hot with R'hllor's fire and then sex magic with undead stranger John to make a shadow baby the likes of which nobody has ever seen. The stranger reborn, savior of the world. Or is John himself the shadow baby, essentially, called forth from his ghost wolf and bound to his fiery corpse? A sort of Burning Shadow Wolfman. The flames crackled softly, and in their crackling she heard the whispered name, Jon Snow. His long face floated before her, limbed in tongues of red and orange, appearing and disappearing again, a shadow half seen behind a fluttering curtain. Now he was a man, now a wolf, now a man again. But the skulls were here as well. The skulls were all around him. All right, so this is an oft-quoted bit of text, of course, but I hope the words are popping out to you a little bit more after our discussion here. John is a shadow half-seen behind a curtain of flame, and his long face is limbed in tongues of fire. So he's a burning shadow man, exactly as I just said, or a burning shadow wolf man, to be more exact, because this vision, of course, spells out the man to wolf to man again path of John's resurrection. 
But again, all of this is happening inside of a magical fire with John's face limbed in tongues of flame and presumably with the rest of John's limbs most likely on fire as well. So it's kind of a double wordplay there. He's limbed in tongues of fire. And of course, tongues of flame are actually a symbol of holy or divine fire, especially in the symbolism of the tarot deck, which we know George is very familiar with. Uh, but of course, limbs of flame also just literally sound like somebody who's made of fire. So this is no accidental choice of words, but a way to indicate that John will be resurrected with the holy fire of a god. Relor, the god of flame and shadow. Or perhaps we should say the god of flaming shadow people, shadow binding, fire white shadow armies, and whatever else Melisandre's she could do things that she had never done before, turns out to mean. So, yeah. Um, let me go ahead and pause for a second there. I've got a section break here, so I can take a quick look at the chat and see how we're doing. We've got 216 people watching live and only 63 likes or somewhere thereabout. It doesn't always update in real time, but if you're watching, please click the like button. Yes, yeah, someone sees 108. It's... It changes, but make sure if you're watching, click the like, make sure you're subscribed, working hard over here, and uh, please do share these videos with your friends if you like them and find them interesting. So you with me so far here? We're, all of the foreshadowing between Melisandre and John is like this swirling mass of resurrection talk, shadow baby talk, fiery ghost wolf talk. There's lots of stuff about John becoming a fire white, um, and, uh, actually let me go back to this idea that the idea that, that the, uh, ghost, his wolf body might be fire whited. Okay. Just like John's corpse. Um, because, uh, let's see here. I, I do think that, like I said, cold hands seems to retain his skin changer magic, even as a walking corpse, he's riding the great elk which presumably would take magic. Great elks don't usually let people ride them. We're told the green men rode great elks. And of course, the green men would be using skin changer magic to do so. Cold Hands also talks to the ravens and acts in concert with the ravens. So he's doing everything a green man and a skin changer is supposed to do. Riding elks, talking to ravens. And, uh, you know, what's the point of showing us that precedent other than to suggest that John might be able to use his skin changer magic when he is resurrected. And that would be pointless if the wolf is dead and there's no wolf for John to use his magic with. Maybe he'll use it on a different animal like the dragon. And of course, the idea that John being a fire white, maybe that's what will enable him to skin change a dragon because normally if you, you, know, if you think about it, trying to skin change a dragon might be insane for a regular person because dragons are fire made flesh. So it might be like touching the white hot stove. Kind of like when Bran tries to skin change Summer, but Summer has that wound. And as soon as he tries to go into Summer, he feels the pain like touching a stove and he pulls back. So perhaps John being a fire white will enable his skin changer magic to sort of harmonize with the dragon. But that aside, it wouldn't make sense to show us this precedent of cold hands if John doesn't have an animal to skin change. So maybe undead ghost and undead John is how this will work. And I think there might be foreshadowing for this 
in um, Theon's vision of dead Rob Stark, uh, also known as Rob Zombie. <laughs> That's right. It occurred to me yesterday that uh, George could be making a Rob Zombie joke or it could just be an accident. Um, but <laughs> Rob Stark is a zombie in this in this scene. So, um, you know, so just first off, we've talked about Rob being foreshadowing for John before. Uh, the fact that Grey Wind's wolf head is sewn onto Rob's corpse and then crowned with the King of Winter crown seems like kind of a symbolic totem or a picture of what the King of Winter is supposed to be, like a true wolf man, perhaps an undead wolf man. And John in particular will be an undead wolf man and probably will be the King of Winter at some point uh, if he's leading the forces of the North against the others, as we would expect him to do. So this is Theon's dream of a corpse feast at Winterfell. Uh, and it's really vivid. So I, I read uh, a little chunk of it here. And here we are. King Robert sat with his guts spilling out on the table from the great gash in his belly. And Lord Eddard was headless beside him. Corpses lined the benches below, gray-brown flesh sloughing off their bones as they raised their cups to toast, worms crawling in and out of the holes that were their eyes. He knew them, every one. But there were other faces he had never known in life, faces he had only seen in stone. The slim, sad girl who wore a crown of pale blue roses and a white gown spattered with gore could only be Lyanna. Her brother Brandon stood beside her, and their father Lord Rickard just behind. Along the walls, figures half-seen moved through the shadows, pale shades with long, grim faces. The sight of them sent fear shivering through Theon, sharp as a knife. And then the tall doors opened with a crash, and a freezing gale blew down the hall, and Rob came walking out of the night. Grey wind stalked beside him, eyes burning, and man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Savage wounds. Savage wounds, yes. So, a great passage there. And by the way, I'm, I've mentioned a couple times, I'm going to do a George Martin writing technique stream. I did one already, I'm going to start doing a series of these, about his use of poetic writing. And... That last one was a great example of that. Uh, let me put this back on the screen and scroll back to this last page. And then the tall doors opened with a crash, and a freezing gale blew down the hall, and Rob came walking out of the night. Gray wind stalked beside, eyes burning, and a man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Like, the rhythm of that is almost like a poem. Um, it's not quite the tight structure of a poem, uh, but it, it, the meter, the phrases, the way that they have echoing uh, syllables and things like that. Um, this, I just can't wait to tear into this topic. Most of the dream sequences in A Song of Ice and Fire are written with a more poetic meter. Um, and I just love it. It's, it's a really cool technique. But setting that aside, I digress. I digress. Um, this is a really cool scene. Obviously, it's vivid. It's it's badass. It's definitely freaking Theon out, as well as uh, uh, Doctor Notes here. Uh, but think about this as foreshadowing for John. Um, John, when he died, was going to march on Winterfell, and I think it's very likely that when he is resurrected, he will also march on Winterfell, no matter what the situation is. 
if he's raised by the others, if his body is stolen by the others, the entire point of that would be to use John's prince that was promised magic to somehow break down the wall or cross the wall or have something to do with the comet or something like that. Um, the point of John becoming a, a otherized would be to turn him into a leader of the others to lead their invasion. He would be the new Night King for a time. So they would be invading Westeros and marching to Winterfell with John at the front of the other's army until he can be saved, you know, um, which could happen at Winterfell. He might be otherized for like a good portion of the winds of winter. And wouldn't that freak everybody out? Uh, so that is one possibility. Even if he's not stolen by the others or he's freed from that bondage at the wall before he comes south, he might be marching on Winterfell to do battle with whoever the survivors are or to march on Winterfell in order to rally the troops to fight against the others. So any way you slice it, this undead wolfman, Rob, King of Winter, undead King of Winter with a wolf at his side, storming into Winterfell in a scene full of others and stuff, this could be foreshadowing for John. Um, <clears throat> so notice that the wolf, the wolf's eyes burn like fire. So if this is foreshadowing for John, this could be a clue that we will see a fire-whited ghost walking next to undead John, right? That's, <laughs> that could be why the, we have an undead wolf with burning eyes here. Then we notice the pale shades moving through the shadows. It sounds like the others here in a scene full of corpses. So this is all likely to be the case at Winterfell at some point by the end of the story. And this is when we will need, again, Ghost John, the burning shadow man, to march in and save the day. So perhaps he'll have a fiery wolf at his side, just as Rob does. Or maybe it's just wishful thinking. But still, I wanted to give you the possibility to chew on and then finish by pointing out that basically every description of the eyes of any of the dire wolves uses the language of fire. It's like molten silver or a shaggy dog is like wildfire. He's got the green eyes. Um, they're all fiery. Um, also, Rob's gray wind is like silver smoke. So if you, if you think about gray wind as a wolf whose fur looks like smoke and whose eyes look like fire, he's basically a fire wolf. Um, and one of the things about the wolves all having this fiery symbolism, as I pointed out, is that this is a nod to Cerberus. Cerberus is a three-headed hellhound, which guards the entrance to Hades, right? So we've all figured out that the crypts of Winterfell have that same underworld Hades Lord of Death symbolism and that these dire wolves are a version of Cerberus. Um, and I've also pointed out that George has taken Cerberus and split it off into the three-headed dragon of Targaryen as well as the one-headed hellhound direwolf of House Stark. And both the Targaryens and Starks have nothing but underworld and death symbolism. So, and yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't wear my three-headed uh, dachshund t-shirt that I've got. Shout out to Buchan Gase. Um, but there you go. So the Cerberus symbolism would also be more appropriately fulfilled if undead John, the most 
central and important um, manifestation of the entire Stark King of Winter archetype. Like that is John. That's what he's here to do. Um, it would be appropriate. He should have a wolf. And if he had a fiery undead wolf, like I said, that would just be more obviously Cerberus-like and more like the Hellhound. So that is the sort of origin of the Stark symbolism. So guys, here's my best guess as to how this foreshadowing having to do with John, Melisandre, resurrection, and shadow babies will manifest. Actually, let me pop in a lozenge. All right, so the last kiss is almost certainly going to be needed to raise John's corpse, or perhaps even to free it from the ice magic enchantment of the others, as I mentioned. Fire will be needed to burn out the potentially combined man-wolf spirit from Ghost's wolf body, and then some sort of shadow-binding magic will be needed to make sure that John's ghost ends up back in his own body, fired up and ready for action. And of course, we've talked about in the Fire Whites video, in the Fire Whites Watch video, how making a Fire White is essentially shadow-binding, in case you missed that. Like, Barrack's corpse is resurrected. Not really. It's actually just reanimated. It's not brought back to life. It doesn't have flowing blood. It's not, it's just a reanimated corpse. It's a zombie. But Barracks, some part of Barracks' awareness, his ghost, if you will, has been reattached to this reanimated corpse. So it really seems like shadow binding, literally binding the shadow of the dead person back to their corpse. So that's why I've been saying resurrected John will be a shadow in every sense. And creating him will be an act of shadow binding. And then, and then Melisandre might make a shadow baby with John, which would also be shadow binding. So it's going to get pretty twisted. Um, so, like I said, Melisandre, after John is resurrected, she might have sex with him. Um, we've been wondering about this, right? Mostly in the context of, well, if John's resurrected, will he have flowing blood and vital processes? Can he have a romance with Danny? Um, you know, uh, a sexual romance. Maybe they can have a romance that's not sexual, but John's going to be undead and that could be thorny, right? Um, who here has dated a zombie? Raise your hand. I'm not sure if there's if that's weird, but uh, <laughs> so what we could see actually is John and Melisandre having a really weird kind of sex magic here. Um, and hopefully this is going to happen after John's awake and conscious, but Quinn pointed out that maybe this will be more like an Osiris, Isis type of thing where the sex magic is part of the resurrection. And if you know about Isis and Osiris, then you know what I'm talking about here. Um, Osiris was cut into 13 parts. Isis could find everything but the penis. That was the 13th part. So she used, um, what was it, in place of a penis? I think it was an obelisk or something um, in place of it and then copulated with him to create Horus, who was very much like the Jesus, so the sort of the, the, the chosen one character. Um, Horus is the new, he sort of takes over for, you know, Osiris becomes a lord of the dead and Horus becomes a new sun god, essentially. So, um, yeah, we could see something like that. <laughs> and we'll have to take our hat off to George if he has the guts to write that scene. 
right? And again, hat tip to Quinn uh, for that <laughs> twisted idea. Quinn's ideas, everyone. Yeah. Check out, of course, his YouTube channel. Uh, if <laughs> I, Most of you have probably seen Dune. Of course, Quinn is the Dune guy, quote unquote, and has lots of cool Dune videos about the new movie on his channel. So check that out if you've seen the new Dune movie and you somehow don't know about Quinn's ideas. There's a very happy marriage waiting to happen between you and Quinn's ideas YouTube channel. So, all right. Let's see here. Um, so, okay. So, it seems like Melisandre's transformation into a full-blown fire entity has to have payoff as well. And I'm just now remembering that I saw a super chat go by from Drew. <clears throat> Drew Thompson what if the Stark Direwolves are representation of the wolves of Finbera, the hunt, the undead for escaping Tekdon? I don't, okay, so I don't know that story. And the last part of your sentence there, I'm not understanding the lingo you're using. So maybe clarify that one, Drew, but um, I don't know the story. So you're going to have to explain a little bit uh, what you're talking about. Like I said, Melisandre's transformation into what I was calling a fire other a being who's sustained entirely by fire magic instead of food and sleep, that has to have some sort of payoff. Because as I pointed out, it seems to be a gradual process where she's almost there. Soon she won't have to sleep at all. And right now all she needs to do is drowse an hour or so at night here or there. So where's that headed, right? That's got to be going somewhere. So one way this could happen is if Melisandre were to walk into a pyre at some point near the end of the story, perhaps that would happen when Ghost is burned and John is resurrected. This could be a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi scene, if you will, where Mel continues to help John as a fire spirit, a fiery ghost, if you will, to advise another fiery ghost. Taking into account the fact that Mel seems to transform a bit more each time she uses fire magic. And this is a key point, so I just want to harp on this. When she has her fire vision in A Dance with Dragons, and we get it from her POV, the fire is inside her, searing and transforming her. So it, again, directly implies that the way that Melisandre is turning herself into a fire other is by simply using fire magic. Each time she uses it, it transforms her a little more. So, if, Melis if Melisandre were to do one of these really powerful, abominable, magical acts that we've been discussing, like having a shadow baby with resurrected John or just resurrecting John, perhaps it would focus so much fire magic through Melisandre that the last vestiges of her humanity would be burned away, which would then leave the first full-blown fire other on the pages of a song of ice and fire and again the same could also happen when mel gives john relore's fiery kiss especially if the others get to john's body first and take possession of it freeing john from such an enchantment could well require a bit more magic than a typical relorist resurrection perhaps enough to sear and transform mel all the way to fire otherdom. Uh, perhaps Melisandre would have to pass her flame of life onto John and sort of wink out of physical existence, just as Beric 
dies, passing his flame of life on to Lady Stoneheart. Such a final act of self-sacrifice would be in keeping with um, George's statement. Well, it would be in keeping with both Mel's fanatical devotion to her cause as well as George's statement about Melisandre being the most misunderstood character in the series, and he has said that. So just to be clear, I would place my bets on Melisandre not completely disappearing if she does do this, but rather becoming a fully realized, incorporeal fire other with no physical body. Um, <laughs> cue, the, cue a Dr. Manhattan-esque speech about how the first thing she learned how to do was to reconstitute herself after she was destroyed, right? And yes, I just watched Watchmen recently. If you haven't watched the Watchmen TV series from HBO, it came out like a year and a half ago, but if you haven't watched it, make sure you do. It's really friggin' good. Uh, it's one of my favorite things that's been made recently. <clears throat> And here's the obligatory, I don't know how to change names, wandering into the stream late and asking if it's the Trugon stream. <laughs> Very good. Um, thanks, Drew Thompson. I see your clarification. I will check that out in a second. So the next question becomes, what can Melisandre do if she becomes a completely fire-based entity? Can she spawn shadow babies at will? Could she travel at super speeds or make herself substantial and insubstantial at will, as it is implied the others can? Let me stop and, and clarify this one. Tormund describes the others as a mist, and we're told that the others don't break the surface of the snow when they walk on it. So the others are partially insubstantial, and it could be that they can make themselves substantial and then turn back into a mist at will. Um, so perhaps Melisandre will be able to do the same thing, where she can sort of materialize and dematerialize. Who knows? Um, once she's left her physical body behind, she's definitely going to be able to do something along those lines, I would think. Else, what's the point? Um, will Melisandre be able to slay others with a touch? Um, could she perhaps light the swords of the Night's Watch on fire, kind of like the TV show version of Melisandre did with the Dothraki Arax. It's one of the cooler parts of uh, <clears throat> the uh, Long Night episode, The Short Night. When Melisandre lights those Dothraki Arax on fire, it was pretty like, yeah! It was a pretty kick-ass moment, you know? Definitely conjured that spirit of what it what it's going to be like. I. Uh, because you at that point you've lost all hope almost, and then you see the, all the swords take fire, and you're like, "Yeah, maybe." It's still really dumb to lead a cavalry charge against zombies, but that part did make sense. Um, so perhaps Mel will be able to light swords on fire. Um, perhaps being a fire other would make it easier for Mel to perform the many last kiss resurrections that would be needed to raise a small army of fiery watchmen. I just made a video, Fire Whites Watch, about all this foreshadowing that John's going to have a little group of fire whites to fight with him, probably to go to the heart of winter. Um, so perhaps, I mean, that's a lot of fire resurrections, and Thoros, it seems to drain Thoros to do it. Uh, so perhaps Melisandre being a fire other means that she'll be able to do it easily. 
Ah. Or maybe she would need to trans... Here's one. Maybe she needs to transform into a fire other in order to perform sex magic with resurrected John, who's going to be a fire white. And definitely leave your comments below letting me know what you think. Because, I mean, this is... This really could go a lot of directions here. I'm trying to, again, give you guys possibilities, try to get you to think about where this could be going. Because George doesn't do something for no reason. Like, he's gone to all this length to show us that fire whites exist, that they can light their swords on fire, that Azor High can raise the dead, supposedly, that he is a warrior of fire, that Melisandre's turning into a fire other, Melisandre's showing up at the wall along with John. Like, where is all this headed? We got to think a little more than just, well, John's going to be resurrected and he'll have a burning sword and he'll fight the others. Well, there's a little more to it, as you can see. There's going to be some weird and dark sorcery. There's going to be potentially more fire whites. Uh, so, yeah. Fun stuff. Definitely leave your comment. Let me know what you think. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, what I've been trying to do with this whole series is essentially give you a better understanding of what kind of magical secrets Melisandre may be pulling out. And just, like I said, to get your mind turning to the possibilities for fireworks and abomination that George may have set up. The Shadow Babies, uh, the Shadow Binders, rather, do have our heroes surrounded, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the series. Quaid is advising Danny. Melisandre is advising John. So... Shadow binding turns out to be pretty important and it turns out to be a whole can of worms which bleeds into Relorism and takes us all the way back to a shy and the, <laughs> and the magic of Azor High girls is my big conclusion. Come here. Throw your wings up for the conclusion. This all seems to be coming to a head with Melisandre, John, and Ghost at the wall. And at the very end of this dark day, I believe that we will behold an even more terrifying version of Azor High Reborn than we had ever imagined. A new godman of flame and shadow. And at his back, an army of flame and shadow, the undead firewhites of the Last Watch, the Chosen of Relor. The Chosen of Relor. Good job, girl. Thank you. Thank you, girl. She, she realized I needed a little pick-me-up there at the end. She's like, you're not trying hard enough, Dave. You can do better than that, Dave. So there you go. That's the end of the scripted portion. I will now go back for PayPal's and Super Chats that I missed. But feel free to send in questions and comments, and I will kick around your ideas. That's right. I work for you, folks. So let me flip up, see, and grab the document here. So Drew Thompson first, he asked if it's possible that Knights King John would take Val as his Knights Queen only to be saved by Danny. Um, I don't think so. I have pointed out that Val has Knights Queen symbolism. She fits that Ice Queen archetype very well. And John and Val do a symbolic routine where Val, somewhat like Melisandre, acts very friendly to Ghost and Ghost goes right up to her. And John says, are you trying to steal my wolf? Which you could translate as, are you trying to steal my ghost? And that is exactly what Knight's Queen did to Knight's King. He took his seed and soul, right? 
pretty similar idea. So that symbolism is definitely there. Check out um, Origin of the Others, Knight's Queen for that scene and all the breakdown. But I don't think that Val... Well, it's an open question whether Val actually knows magic. She hasn't shown any, but it wouldn't be surprising if she did. Um, I have suggested that it might be possible for people other than the others to use ice magic, just as Mel is using fire magic. I don't see any reason why a sorcerer couldn't learn to use ice magic, um, perhaps completely apart from the others. This could be the story behind how the wall was built, built by a Stark using ice magic. So maybe Val knows ice magic somehow, but that's pretty tinfoil, I would say. Um, and there's actually a chance that John and Danny could end the story giving themselves to the others as a way to sort of pacify them and fulfill the pact. So Danny could end up a Night's Queen with John, but in sort of a heroic way. Audrey says, given that Melanie sounds like a Westerosi name, yeah, it sounds like names from the Blackwood family tree, and Mel's powers are stronger at the wall. Do you think it's possible she was abducted from Hardhome and taken into slavery? Um, I don't think so. Do I think it's possible? Sure. Um, Mel's origin is a secret. Uh, but I don't really see anything pointing towards Hardhome. I think that Melanie, if anything, is a clue about her being a Blackwood, um, a.k.a. Blood Raven's daughter. And I talked about this on the Theory Iceberg 2 talked about the idea that Melisandre might be the daughter of Blood Raven and Shiera Seastar, and that there's a lot of Mel variant names in House Blackwood. So Melanie would be a good name to honor House Blackwood. Um, this also raises the, the possibility that Mel has latent skin changer powers that she could even be unaware of. And, you know, why can she call Ghost over to her? That's a mystery. It's probably not the answer, but it's a possibility. So if there's more to the hard home theory, I apologize. Um, yeah, I'm just not sure what would connect her to that. So, because we don't see those kinds of names up north uh, that I'm aware of. Let's see. So uh, Ludmila says, in the last chapters of the books, Winterfell is the coldest place in the north. Indeed, with the highest snows, the castle gates frozen shut, almost like the coldest emanating from Winterfell. Do you think it's because there are others in the crypts or maybe a knight's king or knight's queen? So I do think that George wants us to perceive a snowstorm emanating from Winterfell. It could just be that that's where the storm is. I mean, storms do move around. So it could be a very practical thing. However, it could also be the result of magic. We're told there must always be a Stark in Winterfell, and right now there's not. So it could be the result of that. Um, the Starks might have the blood of the other, so not having a Stark in Winterfell might trigger the you know some sort of other magic or some part of the Long Night. Could be. It's it's hard to say what. It's very speculative, but I do think it's the most likely case that it's a magical snowstorm and that we're supposed to look for a reason for it. I would say. Uh, Jordan says. Great Melisandre series. Thanks for all you do. No problem. Out here working hard for your entertainment. All right. So, uh, like I said, guys, open session now. Any questions you have? Um, you've been trying to get one through on the chat. And I haven't seen it. Now's the time. David asks, um, have you ever discussed the idea 
about John being resurrected as the new Night's King only for him to lose control of them due to Euron corrupting the Weirwood Net or the others. Well, I've mostly talked about those ideas separately. In the A New Night's King question mark video, I talked about how Euron and John are the two people that could lead the others, obviously under different circumstances. Euron would be intending to probably, whereas John John's body would be stolen. Um, Euron could also get body snatched. We've talked about that as well by like the great other or Azor High, you know, his spirit, which could be inside the weirwood net. But I haven't thought about John possessing them and then Euron stealing the others from him. I'm not sure how that's all going to interact. So that's a bit down the line. But John and Euron do definitely have to fight at some point so they can do the Damon Amond one-eye thing over the god's eye. That seems like it has to be repeated somehow. So we'll see. I think Melisandre is the most misunderstood character because people think she's just like Psycho or whatever. And she actually isn't. She's just thinks that the stake of the world is at hand and that it justifies the ends justify the means essentially. So if we have to kill innocent people to do magic in order to save all the rest of the lives on the earth, well, we can count those sacrificed people as noble sacrifices that were needed to save the world. Um, consent's not really all that important, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but she's trying to do the right thing. Um, she tries to protect Davos's last kid because his other kids died at the Blackwater battle, for example. So she's not a complete monster. She just has a different kind of morality because she thinks the end of the world is coming, and it is. So that's probably the main thing that she's misunderstood about. Um, one other thing that I wanted to discuss, and let me go back, I think I missed a super chat before. Yeah, Desmond. Sorry, I forgot. Do you support the theory of Danny becoming a fire white, or do you just lean towards a heroic death for her? So I definitely think Danny will ultimately sacrifice herself to resolve the question of the others and the whites. I talked about that the most in Born to Burn the Others, but also a couple other videos. Um, I do think the chance, chances are that Danny could be resurrected before then. It would make, kind of make sense. I mean, if John's going to be resurrected, Danny could be too. They don't have to be exactly the same, but you know, maybe John's a fire white with a burning sword and Danny is you know, the dragon lord with dragons, and that's their match. But it does seem like Danny could be resurrected. There are fire priests in Volantis. There are there's Makoro headed to Slaver's Bay. So there's definitely plenty of chances for Danny to get fire whited. Um, and we don't know what's open question if when someone becomes a fire white, how much inner monologue they retain and if George will continue to give us POVs. Uh, because I don't think George wants to stop giving us Danny and John POVs. So Dan's new printer says, you've discussed the ending maybe being non-magical, but with hints that magic could still come back, what would be your ideal amount of magic explained versus unanswered? Well, let's see. Uh, I think what we can see with George so far is that he has a loose structure to all the magic, but he takes great effort to obscure it. So I think that, for example, we'll see, I think that we'll see something about falling stars in a brand vision before the new long night is caused by a return of the comet. Because George likes to step up the foreshadowing and give us something kind of increasingly obvious as we approach the event. 
And obviously there's been a lot of foreshadowing or not foreshadowing, but rear shadowing clues about the original night being caused long night being caused by meteor strikes. Um, but the whole point of telling us that the first one was caused by meteor strikes is so that we can anticipate the new long night being caused by a comet or meteor event. So I think the most clear foreshadowing of that would be basically a brand vision, you know, fiery dragons falling from the sky. So there'll be some amount that is explained, but uh, just enough. So another example would be a shy. Uh, Georgia said originally he was planning for Danny to physically go to a shy, and then he changed his mind. I think that physically going to a shy would reveal too much of the mystery. So instead, we should expect Danny to use a glass candle that Marwin the mage is bringing her to sort of visit a shy or probe its secrets a little bit more. That way it'll be foggy and mysterious still, but George can give us the information that he needs to advance the story. And that's basically what he's trying to do. He's not really trying to get us to spend too much time diving into his magic system, but rather he's making the magic serve, serve the plot and the story, I would say. No, I don't think a green seer could warg into a fire white because... And this gets back to what I was saying about warging a dragon. I don't. I doubt that uh, skin changers could skin change a dragon simply because they are fire made flesh. But if a skin changer were to become fire made flesh, like a fire white, maybe they could do it. But um, John shouldn't really need to skin change a dragon, though. To be honest, he's a Targaryen, so he should just be able to hop on. Let Rhaegal sniff his hand and then just hop on, and that's that, right? All right, so. This concludes Melisandre's secrets. Last call for questions, like I said. Um, oh, yes. So there's one more thing I did want to talk about. And someone mentioned it in the chat earlier. Um, John's resurrection really should match Danny's waking the dragon scene in the pyre. Um, first of all, it's a funeral pyre, okay? It's Drogo's funeral pyre. Drogo is a solar king and Danny's husband. John is a solar king, probably going to be Danny's husband or partner in some sense. So obviously there's a lot of Drogo and John comparisons. The dragon, Drogon, has the same coloring and symbolism as John. John is a dragon who dresses in black. Drogon is a black dragon. Uh, on and on. You guys know this. This is like very old basic mythical astronomy stuff here. So uh, John's pyre should mimic Drogo's pyre. Drogo appears to be resurrected from the pyre in a couple ways. Uh, he appears to rise from the pyre on the smoky stallion. And then Danny thinks about the red comet as Drogo's star, Drogo's reincarnated self. When people die, they become the stars. The red comet is Drogo's star. So Drogo appears to rise from the flames and then becomes the red comet which is like becoming Azor High, And this is when the dragons are born and the Azor High reborn prophecy is fulfilled. So of course, John's resurrection should also give us all the key symbols of fulfilling the Azor High reborn prophecy. I do think the red comet will have come back. It will be overhead at this time. John will be on a pyre much like Drogo's. Melisandre will be playing the role of Daenerys lighting the pyre and potentially walking into it. And from this pyre will be born a new dragon and 
a new and monsters and all you can phrase it any way you want to. John's going to be a reborn dragon. He's going to be a monster in the sense that cold hands is a monster and all the whites are kind of like monsters. The dragons are monsters. John's going to be a fire monster. The dragons are fire monsters on and on and on. <clears throat> so that's, that's going to be John's resurrection. It should tick all the boxes of the prophecy. There should be a red comet and we'll probably see a lot of alchemical wedding symbolism. If it's one assumes it'll be in Mel's POV that we'll see it. So it really should feel like Danny's POV with Mel having the fire inside her. If you notice when Danny walks into the pyre, she says, oh, the fire was inside her. So it's just, it's the same language as when Melisandre performs fire magic. So she'll have the fire inside her. She'll light the pyre or walk into it. And it'll be just like uh, Drogo's resurrection. It'll be, it'll be a great symbolic parallel. And this is one of the ones where you mythical astronomy heads are going to get this. As soon as you read it, you're going you're gonna to see, oh, this is like Danny's pyre. And you're going to, all this, the language is going to jump out to you and you're going to feel really smart. So that's, that's part of the benefit of watching all this stuff, right? So I got, I got um, a couple of PayPal's that trickled in. And then I got one last, don't let me leave without giving you my uh, fairy tale analog for Melisandre. Here it is from Melinda, AKA Shadow Demon, thinking about Craster being Aemon's son or a blood of the dragon person. Is it possible all the others have to be blood of the dragon? Yes, this is the whole point of me wanting to believe that Craster is the son of either Blood Raven or Aemon is because all the symbolism suggests the original Azor High fathered the others with Night's Queen, which makes the others, the original others, the frozen blood of the dragon. And I think that's important. So if Craster is also blood of the dragon, that would be cool. That would, that would match. And it would mean that the others are all blood of the dragon. Although it could be other people besides Craster doing the sacrifices as well. So... Yeah, but you got the right idea. That is why I want to believe in that theory. That's why we're all the language about the others, you know, having burning star eyes and nothing burns like the cold and all that stuff. It makes them kind of like ice dragons. I don't think that Danny's been fire whited yet. Some people have wondered about that, but uh, I don't think so. Um, fire whites, you know, like Barrick, they don't have the vital processes, and Danny's you know, having sex with people and eating food and living a pretty normal life. So I think we'd know if she were fire whited. I think she would notice too. Now it's possible that she, um, here's what I do think is possible. If every use of fire magic is transforming Melisandre, we can extrapolate that if anyone uses fire magic, it will begin to alter their physiology. So did Danny quote unquote use fire magic when she walked into the pyre and was unburnt and woke the dragons. Is that fire? It could be. It certainly could be. Um, so maybe Melis maybe Danny's starting down the road of transforming into a fire entity. Um, it's a little more far-fetched, but if she starts using more sorcery, like the dragon binder horn or the glass candles, then maybe this is a road that she is going to go down. So if not all the way, maybe to some extent. 
So is Thoros slowly being consumed by the fire? Well, so Thoros has never really worked with real fire magic until just recently when the last kiss started resurrecting people. Um, it does seem that Thoros is becoming more emaciated. So it's possible that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's possible that Melisandre is emaciated under her glamour and we don't see that. That's very possible. Um, it's possible that, Melis that uh, Thoros doesn't know how to sustain himself. He's just being worn down, but he doesn't know how to do the accompanying magic that may be needed for this transformation to really work. But if he keeps, maybe if Thoros keeps working with, you know, the last kiss resurrections that he would become kind of like a fire other, but I don't, I don't think that's where Thoros is going. And yeah, Danny does um, have some sort of blood uh, at the end of a dance with dragons. And it's unclear if this is a miscarriage or, you know, her menstrual blood returning, um, not returning. Uh, she still does have menstrual blood because that's what Danny thinks it is. And she's like, oh, it's not quite my time. That indicates that she has continued to have normal woman cycles, right? So it's, it's, we don't know if she can have kids, really. Miriam Azdur said that she can't, but we don't know that. She could be full of shit. Yes, that, that's absolutely true. Um, or it could be that that's a curse that can be broken. Um, hard to say. Hard to say. So we will see. But obviously George has given her that experience with the blood there to indicate something. She, you know, either she had a miscarriage from sleeping with Dario or it's just reminding us that maybe, maybe she can have children. Melisandre, yes, her eggs would be cooked. She's been having shadow babies and stuff. So that's whole, that's uh, totally different. Or it could be that Danny isn't going to have natural babies. Maybe Danny will have a shadow baby. Um, you know, maybe it could be that she'll become pregnant by John and then give herself to the weirdness or to the others or something. And that'll be part of the sacrifice. It's hard to say. Definitely some dark shit like that could happen, guys. We can't, we can't blind ourselves to these possibilities. George likes the dark shit. I don't think he's nihilistic or overly cynical. And I do think there is clear morality in A Song of Ice and Fire and definitely messages of hope and stuff like that. But he does like to go to some dark places. So this sorcery is going to be going to dark places with these shadow babies and these, you know, this resurrection sex magic stuff. So, yeah. So from AVN Blah, Dracomorph gave me nightmares. <laughs> That's awesome. That was definitely my intent. That was, uh, and uh, I just showed, by the way, Minty had never seen any of the Aliens movies. And I just, we just watched Alien, the first one last night. So now she understands the true horror of Dracomorph a little better. <laughs> the original Chestburster is definitely like, the special effects, you know, it's 1979 for sure. I was telling her, like, the alien looks a lot better in the second movie, actually. But, uh, yes, Dracomorph is the stuff of nightmares. Dr. Note says John's resurrection before or after the long night, probably concurrent with the fall of the long night or just before. If the red comet's hanging in the air, then it may not have broken the moon yet. Um but there's a lot of symbolism that suggests John's resurrection is going to coincide with the breaking of the moon 
and the breaking of the wall. Um, the wall and the moon are kind of like symbols of John's shell that he's going to break out of. Uh, so, yeah, I've talked about that in the Blood of the Other series. It's a lot of symbolism to try to summarize, but um, actually in the Lord's Snow and the Promised to the Others videos, I did a condensed version of all the quotes that tie John's resurrection to the fall of the wall or the fall of a new long night. So they're definitely tied together. I'm not sure what the sequence will be, but they'll be connected events for sure. And I've also, let's see, uh, Drew is strong Belwas, an Azor High figure or a Knight's King figure. Um, if anything, I haven't thought about this, but he, he fights the hero of Marine in that duel, right? So he'd be kind of like a last hero figure or maybe a Knight's King fighting the hero. Um, but I really don't know. I'd, I'd have to go and read his scenes to be able to say. George does use little side characters to give us clues about Azor High shit. That is true. Um, but I'm not really sure offhand. I'd have to go look at that, True, to be able to, to be able to say. Okay, so check this out. And this, this is a shout-out to Elisa Patience and her YouTube channel, which focuses on the folklore fairy tale correlations to A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, Melisandre's Little Red Riding Hood, kind of. I'll just let that sink in. Little Red Riding Hood gets eaten by a wolf. And then a woodsman comes along and chops open the wolf. And Little Red Riding Hood is, escapes. Um, in some versions, uh, the wolf's body is weighted down with stones and sunk. In some versions, the grandmother also hides inside the wolf or is eaten by the wolf and then pops out. Um, but the point is, the roles are just shuffled around. So in Little Red Riding Hood, Red is eaten by the wolf and the woodsman frees her by cutting open the wolf. Well, in this story... It's the woodsman, John, who's eaten by the wolf, and Little Red Riding Hood, who's going to cut him out and rescue him from the wolf, to free him from the wolf, if you will. So that's pretty cool. Um, the grandmother also, the wolf disguises himself as the grandmother, and Melisandre herself is a grandmother in disguise, right? So she's kind of Red and the grandmother. Um, Let's see. Uh, and I'm not sure how the stones would, would play into it. Um, Lady Stoneheart is a fire white. She has a stone heart. Uh, I'm not sure if John will have that symbolism somehow. Uh, but, you know, there it is. So I threw that at Elisa this morning. So maybe she'll uh, take it further and figure out where that goes. Could just be a clever little nod. But once I was looking at Melisandre in a red hood, and thinking about her and the wolf, I'm like, wait a minute. It's Little Red Riding Hood. So pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. She's kind of a wolf, too, in that she's a predator. Sure, she does consume people in the fire. Yeah, I guess you could say that as well. So there you go, guys. That's uh, I think that'll do it for today. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for liking the video. Thanks for leaving a comment. Please leave a comment on your way out of the stream. That really helps the video get off to a good start, getting recommended by YouTube and stuff. Click like, and please leave a comment. Let me know what you think. And um, I do have thoughts on Wheel of Time. I watched the first three episodes and thought it was good enough to talk about. Had some, some good things, 
some things to critique. I think it could be in a shape to become a good series um, as opposed to sort of a mixed bag. I may do a stream to talk about it and I may talk about sort of the Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones comparisons or something like that. But um, I'll be streaming more the rest of this month basically is what I'm trying to say because I did take like a week and a half off. So I'll see you probably on Wednesday or Friday with another stream. Make sure you're subscribed with the notification bell set to all so you never miss a video or a stream and I will see you again soon.